So we're back with the Kogan Conversation. Uh, I'm here with a good friend, Rachel Gassetti, and we're here to talk about lots of great stuff in this very troubling time. And I know COVID-19 has given us a lot more time to read up and, and learn more about all the stuff that's going on. Uh, but first of all, of course, the Kogan Conversation is about having a glass of whiskey while we have a conversation. And right now I'm having a glass of the Brooklotic Port Charlotte 10. It's a, a new favorite of mine. Uh, shout out to Logan Kaiser, who was on the last podcast. We talked about this. He introduced me to this. It's a very, very peated scotch, 10 years old, uh, very vanilla uh, front end, uh, very sweet, but also just a, a, a decent uh, priced scotch for, for what it is. I, I really enjoy the scotch quite a bit. Uh, full body of smoke, sweetness, and uh, actually a little bit of seaweed and salt. It's got that a little bit of that maritime uh, taste to it. Uh, I'm also wearing one of our new shirts that are out. Uh, shout out to Bonfire. They, they've been uh, making some shirts for us, and people have been ordering the shirts. It's the RMS Titanic Brandy Room Patriot shirt. So if you're on the video, you can see this. Otherwise, the link will be in the description for all the shirts that we sell. Uh, if you're liking what we're doing, uh, please consider supporting and subscribing to all that stuff and uh, buying a T-shirt. So anyway, Rachel, how's it going? What's new? Good, good. Um, not much. You know, like you said, we've got a lot of downtime. Uh, at the moment, lots of time to read and think and ponder. Right. So I know you and I have talked a little bit here and there, um, but you reached out to me to want to be on the podcast and, and you had a, a very specific idea in mind and I just want to be your sounding board. So walk me through what you're thinking. I know kind of we talked about prison reform or mass incarceration. So take the floor to yell at me and tell me what's wrong with the world. <laughs> yeah, so um, uh, mass incarceration in America. America makes up a very, very small percentage of the world's population, I think like 6 or 7%, um, and we house one quarter of the world's prisoners. Um, you know, kind of what can be done to fix that? It, it, it's a problem. It's weird um, that we're the land of the free, and a quarter of us are behind bars with our freedom stripped away. Yeah, it's interesting too. So I, I worked in the pretrial agency back in Milwaukee County, and uh, of course that wasn't prison. That was uh, that was mostly with the jail, the county jail, and then the pretrial services. So prior to conviction, most of them were innocent before proven before proven guilty. But you know they had to either have supervision levels and make sure that they were you know staying on track while they had court cases going on. But a lot of times, I think the, the bigger issue I have with, with all this mass incarceration and how we treat prisoners and people who are in jail or in and out of the system, we don't treat them as human beings. We treat them as numbers in a, in a, in a system that – and they'll never get better because of that. We don't rehab people. And right. we usually – we use that term criminal or I went to prison as a blanket term that then – marks them for life and it makes it even more difficult for them to you know stay out of the system or stay out of trouble because they can't lock down a good job right and you can't get business licenses business loans um certain student loans housing i mean the you know the list goes on and on when you put that f for felony on your application for anything you know so many doors close and then if there are no doors open where else could you go but back to jail because a lot of people when they get out of jail owe money for their, you know, their representation that was awarded to them by the state or the federal level and you have to pay it back. 
yeah, it, it's well, and that's that's part of the problem that, that a lot of these states and and, and uh, well, I guess county jails, so county level, state level, and even federal level, they are incentivized by turning a profit on uh, not not only prison labor, but just the, the the costs that are involved with having someone in, in prison. Not to mention the fact that it costs taxpayers so much more to have people who are in prison for things that they probably shouldn't be there for an extended period of time for. Well, and, and things that even you and I don't care about, like carrying around some pot or, you know, whatever. And it's like there's guys serving 20 years in prison for smoking pot. And it's like that is a huge waste of my money and I'm so against it <laughs> in yeah. every way. No, I, I'm with you. I, I, I'm on board with uh, not only decriminalizing, uh, especially marijuana, but I mean, any nonviolent offense when it comes to drug use, obviously, you know, drug manufacturers and those who are selling in, in very malicious ways, you know, that should be taken seriously. But those who are just, you know, using rather than treat them like criminals, we should have the resources available to them whether it be, you know, outsourcing to a community advocate through a nonprofit or having better services within a jail or an intake service so that you're not just thrown in a cell, you're, you're thrown to something that can help you get better. So there, the, a lot of that knowledge gap is missing. You know? Right. I mean, I think, I think a lot of America today kind of has come to terms with the fact that addiction and drug use is a disease and there's no other mental disease or defect where you're thrown in jail for five, 10, 20 years, you know, well, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's an, it's an interesting argument because I've, I've had a lot of discussions with people who think that because you make that choice to use drugs, even though there are so many, you know, so many different stories that, you know, you and I both know that that's not how that always works. Sure. There are the occasional people who make just consistently bad decisions and it's like, sure. you know what? Maybe you should, you know, you let, you made your bed, now you lay in it. However, that doesn't mean we shouldn't give them help. It doesn't matter your story. It doesn't matter whether addiction was a choice or not. The, the point is, is that this is how drugs work. And we, if we're going to treat right. these people like criminals for, for all time, then we're going to have a mass incarceration issue along with a more, uh, a vastly larger homeless population, a vastly larger uh, part of society that just cannot function in, in the correct way. Right, right. And, you know, a lot of those drug companies that are peddling these things then turn around and sell drugs in large numbers to prisons and make even more money off the people that they just put in jail. It's like this vicious, vicious cycle of profit. Right. It's all about money. And it's... I, I read a post the other day, Aleve, Tylenol, Phillips, you know, not so much that they have people in prison making their drugs, but undoubtedly these are huge accounts for their sales, you know, um, are these large prisons. And there's an ungodly number of prisons across the United States that they're selling to. Right. Yeah. There, I don't, I don't know what the best way to get, get rid of that profit motive is because I, I, I do want there to be a, a free market where the, 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 the drug companies like Tylenol and, and aspirin can, can, can manufacture what they're making, but I also think that our culture needs to shift, which is something we can't legislate away. I don't think I don't think we should be so quick to just pop pills in this nation. But for whatever reason, we are, and I don't I don't know how to change that mentality. Right, right. Um, 
I mean, really, mass incarceration boomed after the war on drugs was declared. I think it, uh, the mass criminalization of overwhelmingly crack and heroin, which are cheap drugs that you can buy in the inner city versus Coke that you buy in the suburbs to go to parties with, right. um, or so the stereotype would would have you think. Um, but, you know, that really in the 80s, I mean, from then to now, um, you know, we have these people in there for having a, a rock in their pocket. Oh, yeah. No, I, I mean, and just to make it even more timely, the after the civil rights movement, um, the black community, and not, not only the black community, but almost every race across, and I, I really wish we didn't have to, you know, put people in boxes, but it, it, just, it just helps because the narrative of this country is so torn with, with, with all this, you know, d- different race building and, and race destroying. But uh, unfortunately, the war on drugs destroyed all of the booming success that happened after the civil rights movement. I think single motherhood was at, I think, maybe 2018% in the black community. And then it jumped to 70% after the 1980s, the mid-1980s. And uh, the crime bills that uh, our good friend Joe Biden helped legislate and in the Senate the in the 90s. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, there, there, there are larger implications. And I know it's like the, the, the path to hell is paved with good intentions, but the, the, the good intention was to get drugs off the street and, and to stop this from happening and to save lives. But, you know, you, you, you're prosecuting the wrong thing you, and you're prosecuting the wrong way. If you're going to take if you're going to take these people away, you better treat them and get them better rather than putting them in jail for five months and then spitting them back out and expecting them to make better choices because now they're going to resent the system. They're going to resent the cops. They're going to resent the judges and they're going to keep doing what they're doing because they have no other option, unfortunately. Well, and I think you touched on a great point earlier about even how they're treated when they're in prison. I mean, we don't treat people who are in prison with any sort of dignity or respect. Um, Like as soon as you're convicted of a crime, you're basically written off uh, in American society. And it's, it's, not right because if you treat anyone like crap long enough they're going to believe it i mean you know whether it be toxic relationships or dogs even if you treat anything like dirt long enough they're going to believe that they're dirt so you know we spend years treating these people as less than human and then say okay here go be human again and they're like i i wouldn't even know where to start (laughs) Right. Uh, I always get so frustrated when someone says, you know, oh, they should just get a job. Well, unfortunately, when you have someone who is in the lower rungs of of the economic stepladder, who have a lot of potential mental health issues, and whether it be as minor as just, you know, mild anxiety to all the way to some of the worst things you you can you can have on, you know, some of those can be traumatic from or traumatic stress disorder from being in prison and being in the jail system. Mm-hmm. Um, those are all left untreated. So we're, you know, people argue they should get a job and get, pull their, their life together. Well, that's like step 47. Step one right. for them, step one for them is getting up in the morning and brushing their teeth. And sometimes they don't even have the ability to do that because they can't afford toothpaste. So like we have to figure out the best way to attack this. I'm not saying let's just give everybody money and welfare, but we should like, we should attack this in a more humane way. I mean, and 
and there's countries that have proven, I mean, there's countries that have proven that that's worked. Um, if you look at Sweden, Norway, Germany, they all have very low crime rates. They all have very low rates of reoffenders, and all of those countries are known for how humane and peaceful their prisons are. Um, like I think Norway was rated, you know, most luxurious prison or whatever, which I'm not sure if you want that award per se, <laughs> but I mean, you know, they have, it's basically like an apartment that you share and, you know, they're play cards with the guards and, you know, they talk about their families and stuff like that. And, you know, studies have been done on it and it's proven that when your incarceration is focused on rehabilitation, your chances of reoffending go down significantly. And yep. even in the United States, there's programs where, you know, there's trades, degrees, things like that. There's whole prisons that focus on rehabilitation. And those prisons have also proven that even in America, those people are less likely to reoffend. Absolutely. I, I think I think that the, the struggle is a lot of times we fall on to the emotional sword and it gets very difficult because like I work in the system. I, I've... I've shed tears over what I've seen. I, I've, I, I've, I've dealt with a lot of issues with, with all the clients that I've worked with and seeing how these people, whether they've made a mistake or not, like, then yes, we should hold people accountable. But that accountability can come with compassion. And, you know, it's heartbreaking to see how the system treats them and how the system chews them up and sits, spits them back out. And not even people who are guilty, but sometimes people who eventually after six to eight months have their their case thrown out because the witness doesn't show up or, or you know, there's not enough evidence or some, some stupid thing that it's like, well, now you just ruined this person for six to eight months and you've treated them like a criminal and now they feel like a criminal and, and they lost their job because they've had to go to so many court hearings or status conferences in downtown paying a parking meter because you know, I, you and I both know downtown Milwaukee for, I mean, this is my reference is it's expensive to park in, but yeah. it's like what, what, what I think we have to do a better job of is making the argument from a, a taxpayer dollar standpoint, because everything that you and I are talking about sounds like common sense to a good person, but to some people who are on Capitol Hill, to some people who are, you know, more interested in making a buck, the, or, or the voters who are just so uh, you know, glossy eyed because their candidate or whoever is saying some great thing, uh, whether it be a Trump voter or Biden voter, they, you know, it's like they don't really care about anything other than what they're speaking at the podium. So there's right. not much nuance being understood. Um, right. But if you, I guarantee you, if you, you go to a, uh, a very conservative or, or uh, someone who is stereotypically against prison reform in a more humanitarian way, and you say, look, if we if we put in these systems this way, we spend more money on the front end. Taxpayer dollars decrease significantly. The the agency I worked for, we from 2017 to 2018, the data showed that we dropped recidivism by 25. percent That means less people coming in who have offended before. That means there's less resources needed for court. There's less resources needed in any part of the, of the county jail system. And that means it's less tax dollars for us. But the problem is when we say helping criminals, that's not a very sexy campaign slogan. <laughs> so Right. Um, but, you know, it, there's still people. I mean, mm -hmm. who hasn't made mistakes? I mean, I think what sets us apart is some of us haven't got caught. 
<laughs> for some of that. I mean, I don't think I know a single person who hasn't had a drink too many before getting behind the wheel, you know, right. or I don't think I know a single person who hasn't, you know, run a yellow that's turned into red things that like we take for granted that, you know, we just haven't got caught, but right. you know, all it takes is one time getting pulled over felony DUI. Now you're a felon. Um, Unless, of course, you have the tens of thousands of dollars to hire a good DUI attorney that might get you off. But, you know, I think minorities and and lower class white people, you'll just get the felony DUI and now you're a felon. Well, that that, that, that's a good that's a good point, because I've witnessed so many people who get such shitty public defenders who are obviously that the state provides you with a public defender because you have the right to an attorney. But. You don't have the right to a good attorney, right? And a good attorneys, like you said, they cost a lot of money. And, and there, there are t- to uh, the public defenders' credit, there are some really good public defenders who try their their damnedest to do the best job. But a lot of times, you just have public defenders who are just just kind of like they're they're just a, a warm body, right? And they're just kind of going through the motions and, re- and regurgitating what the judge says. I've watched it happen, and public defenders will come in for a a status conference or for a, uh, a violation, like a, a, a positive drug test when they're on supervision or a GPS bracelet, whatever. And it's like, even if the, the client has or defendant has a, a reasonable you know, story, the public defender just kind of says, well, you screwed up. So, oh, well, it's like, I, it's, I don't know. It's, it's tough. I get, I get so upset with all these different things that a lot of people who don't work in the system or, or, or who don't, understand the system fail to even want to understand because it's so so many different rabbit holes I could go down yeah I mean I our uh justice system is a very pay-to-play system you know if you can afford to hire the best lawyers you're probably gonna be all right you know Mm -hmm. unless you're like a serial killer um (laughs) but you know if if I have $10 to my name and I, you know, get a DUI and you can hire a $10,000 lawyer and get the same charge. Our sentences are going to be very, very different. You know, the outcome of both of those cases will be very different. Right. Right. I, um, it, it, you know, and that's if any of these ever make it to trial. Um, most cases, and I don't think a lot of people know this, most cases never see a trial happen. No, it's mostly all. a plea deal. Most, I think, I think the figure is 97% of people who are in jail right now are there on a plea deal. Yep. So, I mean, and you know, you have to acknowledge the fact that if all these 2 million people actually got a trial, I mean, it would be 20 years before you'd get a sentence or, you know, it would overload our criminal justice system. And I acknowledge that, but you know, we have a right to a trial, right. but I feel like oftentimes a lot of people are probably intimidated into taking, you know, I can get you three years, but if this goes to trial and you lose, you'll get 20, you know? Oh who, yeah. Who, how many people are willing to shake those dice? <laughs> Regardless of whether you think that you're guilty or not, how many people are willing, you know, three years you'll get out in one and a half with good behavior. You know, who wouldn't at least think about it? Right. Oh, I, hell, I would. 
I, um, I, I would think about that even if I had enough money for a good lawyer. <laughs> like that's yeah, uh, I, I mean, you save a lot of money not going to trial. <laughs> um, but, you know, and there's so many cases. Like I think uh, Khalif Browder is a great example of just like that, but like everything wrong with our criminal justice system. But, you know, his mom didn't have money for bail. She didn't have money for a lawyer. He didn't take a plea deal and he was essentially punished for it. Mm-hmm. He was in jail for three years for a crime he swore he didn't commit, and we'll never know if he committed it or not. And then they're just like, "Oh, turns out there's absolutely no evidence. See ya." <laughs> but he had been, just been treated like a criminal for three years. Yep. So he got yep. out, and he had no idea what to do. He had mental problems that weren't addressed. Yep. He, you know, tried to get a job, couldn't find a job. Tried to go to college, didn't think he fit in. You know, that's, I think that's an extreme case, but I'm sure there are many more just like him well, that have yeah. made the news. <laughs> the, the, fact, the fact that it happens is, is enough for, for us to have to look at our system and, and, and make it better. I mean, I, I don't know. I, this might be an interesting question. What's, what's the line for, for when, when, do, when can we throw away the compassion and say, okay, you are clearly going to go rotten in jail. And we'll, we'll, we're going to omit the death penalty argument because that's not one, that could be a whole other podcast. But right. so for waiving that and, and, and any, any of the nuances there, you know, where, where's the line drawn? Like, is there, is there, is there a number of strikes you get before you're just lost? Like if you, if you're caught doing something terrible 20 times, like a DUI, you know, that first DUI, and when you're 19 or 20, I could get understand, you know, changing right. your ways. Your second one, maybe you were dumb. Your third, okay, hey. But then your fourth, your fifth, your sixth, is there something that we can be doing better? Is that the system's fault? Is it not providing you help? Is it your family structure that you're missing at home? Like what where where do we it's tough it's tough, right? There's so many more characters and actors at play than just the system sometimes. Right. I think it's easier to, you know, to quantify like obviously like murderers rapists child mm-hmm. molesters like obviously those people belong behind bars um not to say that you have to be an absolute jerk to them um but they don't belong in our civilized society um but you know like you said a, a dui okay well his third or fourth maybe he's got a drinking problem <laughs> maybe right. you know he's going through a divorce he just lost custody of his kids like there's something else going on that like you you know instead of being like screw you buddy be like hey man do you do you need somebody to talk to like are you doing okay (laughs) you know and and maybe like you said he doesn't have that at home and he, he takes it out on the bottle and pays the price for it but you know it's it's easy to to criminalize people who are doing crimes but like there's there's a reason there's desperation, there's mental illness, there's depression, there's necessity, there's reasons people commit crimes. And I think until, you know, we address that, you know, go a level deeper and, and address why these crimes are happening, you know, poverty is a huge, you know, anywhere there's poverty, there's going to be heightened crime, um, inner cities, poor communities, poor rural areas, even, um, there's higher crime. So, you know, until we address those root causes, you know, I'm not sure that we could live in a utopian society, but, you know, I also think that 
the prison system does a really good job in and of itself of creating criminals, creating career criminals. Yeah, it it, it almost emboldens the culture a lot of times, uh, especially when, unfortunately, there are a lot of people who get in, into prison and they have, it's like, you know, the, the tattoo culture and you have, you know, the teardrops on your face or you have the, the I think was it the the women's lipstick on your neck if you if mm-hmm. you did, did something so it's it's like these these little cultural things that it, the system doesn't do any justice in helping to stop I don't know if it's right to say that the system is guilty of it I think they are just inadvertently allowing it to happen they're not just, you know yeah just brushing it off yeah so is is there a way we could I mean Norway is a good example but Norway also is a different very homogenous place that you know with with a very homogenous culture you know they all enjoy their own norwegian things and we have like seventeen thousand different melting pot aspects in our country so i mean a lot of times in prisons too there's there's segregation you have segregated races obviously segregated by gender that plays a part too and if you ever go i don't know if you ever uh, toured a prison or a jail Recently, I haven't. I have been to the courthouse um, in Milwaukee that's attached to the jail, but I've never gone into the jail. Yeah. So I my last job, I was in and out of the jail quite frequently. We uh, we had to go out. So my job, obviously, I was I was a pretrial case manager. I would manage people who were on supervision um, by the by the court. And our job was basically to be a, a social worker with them, to help them reach out to other certified social workers in different areas. But whenever they were released from jail, whether it be on bond or whether it be on, on bail, we would go down and meet them at the door to the jail and walk them to our office. And sometimes we would actually have to go into the jail and talk to our other, like our counterparts who are working in the jail for intake and, and asking them intake questions. Or uh, we would even just go down there for tours sometimes just, just to see it with any new hires just to get a, a, a lay of the land. But the the jail in Milwaukee County, and the, obviously I'm speaking to Milwaukee County because that's my only reference point, but it was built in 1996. And you walk in there and you would think that this place was built in maybe the early 70s, maybe. And you can tell that there's just paint chipping off the walls and things aren't taken care of. And, and the aesthetic is very mundane and... You know, I get it's a jail. I understand it's a place where you're supposed to, you know, pay for what you've done in a, in a sense. But when you have places like this, along with prisons, so MSDF, I think it's MSDF, the Maximum Security Det- Detention Facility, across the street from the jail in Milwaukee, you know, they have the same setup. It's very mundane and, and small windows and not much sunlight, and only certain people can go out at certain times, and the paint's chipping off the walls, and uh, it's very like a a grayscale color, that does something to the human psyche. Whether you are guilty of the worst crime possible or you're serving 10 years because you manufactured some cocaine, you know, you, if you ever get out of there, you you are going to have a different, ex, different experience when you leave because of the PTSD you face from inside. And there's not enough social work that goes on inside the jail, inside the prisons. So, my whole point is accountability needs to happen, of course. I think we're all on the same page with that. But compassion needs to be a part of this because if we want these people to get better and be back to society and learn from their mistakes, we have to help them get there. We, you, know, you, can't, you can't just throw them in a box that's, that looks like it's a, a, a disgusting yellow 1970s chipping paint crap hole and then expect them to be better 
five years after they're done. That's not going to happen. I would go mental in there, and that that's that's a problem. Yeah, I mean, you know, like you said, pri- you go to prison in most cases. You know, theoretically, because you committed a crime, you need to pay your debt to society. But you know, for me, I feel when you pay your debt to society, you get out of prison, your debt should be paid. Right. That's the purpose. And and I think also part of paying your debt to society should be the responsibility of coming out a better person than you went in. Um, I think that's part of the debt that you owe the society that you wronged. And I mean, obviously that doesn't happen, but you know, when you get out, you're on parole or you're on probation and you know, one little slip up, a drink, uh, you know, smoking, you know, out past curfew. If you have a curfew yep. and you go, you, you know, not paying your money um, and you go back. And I think, you know, it creates a sense of learned helplessness um, where you're like, when is, this is never going to end, I'm never going to get out from under this, you know, and if you feel helpless and hopeless, that's going to lead to, you know, mental instability, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, because that's what a lot of people turn to when they're feeling like they have nothing left, nothing to hope for, nothing to look forward to. And again, you're just, you're creating a cycle. And not to mention when you leave jail as well, if you leave jail a felon, uh, some of your rights don't come back. Right. Um, namely the right to vote. Yeah. So they turn you back into society. They say, okay, you're a part of society again, but you are never again allowed to contribute to deciding who represents you in that society. You know, I think that's weird because, you know, some people come out of jail with a bachelor's degree and open a business. So now I can't vote for tax levies or, or the streets that are in front of my business because... 10, 20 years ago, I committed a felony. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because, you know, obviously the, the other one is, is the right to bear arms and that, that might have a little bit more of a, you know, it might hold water more for me if you are, uh, a two or three time offender with firearms and you probably should not. If you're a violent offender or violent yeah. offender, like, sure, I get it. Like if you beat your wife three separate times, you probably shouldn't have a gun in the house that is more like common sense. <laughs> right, um, right. But uh, you're right, though. The vote, voting thing is, is is unique. And I know there's a there's a big push right now to allow people who are actively in prison to vote. And I'm, I'm actually very torn on that. I'm not really sure how I, how I feel. However, I almost want them to have a voice because, I mean, there are a lot of things that happen inside the prison walls that we don't know about. And I really don't care what you what you've done. This is now your new home aside from society, and it needs to be humane. I'm not in the torture business. I don't think our government should be in the torture business. Um, obviously, I, I think we all have our personal opinions when it comes to pedophilia and 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 rape and and people who are serial killers. I think in our own selfish ways, we want them to burn at the stake, but that's not how our society operates. We have to we have to work with the reality that we have, and. I don't, I don't know what it's going to take for us to, you know, break through that, that stigma that, you know, the word criminal, even, and to be fair, even the word sex offender, sometimes that gets blanketed in a way that isn't fair. Sure. I mean, because a sex offender could be anything from, you know, a, a violent sexual assault 
to you were 23, she swore she was 18 mm-hmm. and she was 16 at a party that she wasn't supposed to be at, you know? And sure, it's not right, but like. There's a big difference there. Does there's, that, yeah, there's a huge disparity between, but it's the same, it's the same term for everybody. You know, just like criminal, you could have been caught with, you know, a marginal amount of marijuana or you're a serial killer. They're both criminals. And there's a huge difference in who I would want to be my neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Because um, I, I I think the, the biggest stigma is just is just the if you know, if you are ever part of that, you know, wrongdoer aspect you are looked down upon and you i mean thankfully a lot of jobs have been doing a better job at getting you know people who have shown that they have gotten better into the folds of society which is great and there are programs for that um but i I mean the overcrowding and the 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 mass incarceration that we still have in this country is is the number one issue and a lot of it because of you know either minority status or socioeconomic um you know, you're, you're, you're just impoverished. You're too poor to afford a lawyer or to have your case looked at or to have anything changed for you, uh, along with nonviolent offenses. So I'm wondering, you know, is it, is it right for us to just, cause that's interesting too. You can't blanket nonviolent offense because sometimes things do have, you know, inadvertent effects for someone else, but not in a sense that is the same as someone who is, dealing cocaine maliciously or someone who is domestic violence, uh, habitual, you know? Right. Yeah. I don't, um, I mean, I think ending the war on drugs is step number one, um, decriminalizing drugs in general. And I know like people here decriminalizing heroin and they're like, you know, cause we have an opioid epidemic going on, but it's not like, here, by all means, you know, everybody try a little bit. Um, just don't send people to jail for it. You know, send them to rehab, send them to a counselor, you know, get them what they really need instead of, you know, just throwing them to the lions, essentially, for, again, what we have pretty much in this society decided is a disease, is right. a, 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 a mental issue Um, because whether or not you made a choice or didn't make a choice by the time you're getting arrested, it's no longer a choice. (laughs) You know, I mean, if, if you chose to try heroin and then you got addicted, sure, that was a choice. But by the time you get arrested for, you know, stealing to afford your habit, it's no longer a choice for you. It's, you need it. So yeah, it's a psychological issue. And, you know, and I don't think that. Those, you know, obviously if you're dealing drugs for like a cartel or something, that's totally different. But, you know, if, if you're just some guy on the street selling like a blunt to someone, like, do you really need to send, sit for 20 years? (laughs) Probably not. You'll probably be all right. (laughs) Yeah, no, right. I, so there was a interesting kind of a internal struggle I had with, with, with myself when I was at this, this, this uh, pretrial agency and it was a community advocate program that was providing uh, clean needles to heroin users. And when you say that right off the bat, people who aren't in the system or don't understand how mental illness works and how addiction works, they, they go, oh my God, you know, you're right. going to give clean needles to people who are using heroin. That All that does is encourage them. 
And, you know, I'll be honest, you know, the human reaction is to kind of feel that way and kind of be like, oh boy, I don't know if that's the best idea. And once I learned more of how this all worked, a lot of times that knowledge gap is what the issue is. And when you have places with clean needles, which for one helps mitigate the spread of HIV and which, which is getting bad in Milwaukee right now, from what I understand, the spread of HIV is on the rise for the first time in a couple decades. Uh, it is down here too, actually, um, from intravenous drug use. So, yep. Yeah. It's, it's, it's insane. And I, I, I don't know how we're turning a blind eye to this, but I mean, the news is just we know it's it's a it's a, it's a, it's <laughs> the, news a is, the news is not news it's not going to give you what you need <laughs> no it's not it's it's going to focus on things that give ratings they don't want to focus on uh that was hiv epidemic was so 1980s and they're done with it yeah we're over it we're over it frustrating but no so you know so it mitigates hiv spread and it also provides uh link ups so that you can practice safe drug use when and safe drug use means that you're not going to be you're going to be in an environment you're not going to overdose in your yes. room by yourself. Yes, exactly. You're going to be around people or or with someone to help you to make sure that you're not overdosing. Now that being said, those same community advocates who are giving away free uh, needles to help mitigate those things, they're also sometimes mostly the first point of contact that that drug user is having, who has resources and the knowledge of what you know, resources and addiction resources that are out there. So, you know, you, you, you show up to that tent that has a free needle because you need, you, you need your fix and you, you're, you're an addict and you, you need help, but you won't admit it. And a lot of times in my experience, people who are addicts usually have to hit rock bottom if they're so well in the weeds, you know, unfortunately, sometimes it just takes something to really snap you out of it. But a lot of times those same people don't have, don't even have a clue what exists out there for help. And when you go and get a clean needle and these people are educating you on what exists, like, hey, man, have you thought about this? And you, that person might just slap you away and say, give me my clean needle and walk away. However, they know that that's where the clean needles come from. So they go back and back and back on you, build out that relationship up over the course of however long. And now they have been practicing safe drugs. They're not hurting anybody else. And they finally come to a point where they trust that person and finally take up the, the resource that was offered to them. The jail and the prison does not do that. And if they did do that, or at least incorporated like maybe a, a partnership with those kind of community advocates, we would be so far along. Sure. But, uh, you know, for those who get um, incarcerated for drug charges, throw, you know, AODA counselors in there, you know, some even peer counselors like I might have been in your shoes nine months ago. I know exactly how it is. There's a lot of peer counseling programs out there for people in recovery. Um, but again, they never see the inside of a, a jailhouse. They, you know, which is really where you want them to, one of the places you want them to be. Uh, again, it rehabilitation for any crime, you know, obviously drugs rehabilitation is necessary. Um, but even, I mean, if we put counselors in, in prisons and we put programs in prison that teach trades or skills or even like interview skills, you know, things like that. So that when you get out, you're not just like, you know, a deer caught in the headlights. Yep. 
No, I, I agree. And and there are, I mean, we could Google right now. There are examples of, of certain prisons or or jails that are doing some great work. But they are so far and few in between and, and right. very much underfunded. Right. Um, but, you know, part of me almost thinks that it some sort of rehabilitation program should be a requirement for your parole. Like, yeah. like I said, I think that you should, part of your debt to society is, becoming a better person so that you don't go back. I think that's what you owe me when you commit a felony armed robbery or whatever, whatever it is that you're in for. Um, but part of that, that you owe us, the rest of the people that are going to see you on the street in seven to 10 years is, you know, to make us safer and to make sure that you are not a threat to us anymore. And I think that if we allocated, as you mentioned before, if you allocated the resources up front, it is an investment. Um, there's not a prison that's started one of these programs that hasn't said you do shell out, you know, you do shell out the money out at first, but on the back end, you are saving money, um, by reducing the amount of people that are coming back through those doors over and over and over again for typically the same thing. Um, but it's just, you know, and I, I know a lot of people would balk at, you know, investing that kind of money extra money but you know we already put i don't think people understand how much money we already put into the prison system um well that that, that would just, be just that little bit more would would help i mean we have there's so many so many state local federal and juvenile prisons that there's just nothing it's just like a barren wasteland once you get inside. Oh yeah, no. I but I, I would say that I don't even think it would be extra. I think, and I, I I've been consistent with this thus far. I, I I'm not about spending more money. I don't think we need to we need to spend more. I think we need to spend more wisely with what we have. And sure, in fact, I, I different reallocate. Yeah, re reallocate. I don't think, and that's that's I think that's where we have to appeal to the taxpayers and the, and the voters in that way. That 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 can be a good campaign slogan. That I will. I will reduce recidivism and rehabilitate and whatever, and I'll also save money doing it because you're not funding the unnecessary parts of the prison system. You are using your budget in a more in a more effective way, in a more efficient way, and that for whatever reason, all that bloat and bureaucratic red tape and crap that doesn't help anything is getting in the way of actually helping human beings re-enter society after they have paid their debt to society for what they've done. Right. Um, so I don't know. I, I mean, I, I'll, I'll give you a quick story because it, it's actually it just popped in my brain when you're talking about this. Um, I had a I had a client who was uh, probably in his mid sixties and he was homeless, and I I had him. He was turned over to me probably four or five different times because he would just end up not showing up, or he would just he would he would have a bench warrant or whatever. He would just kind of you know screw off and and not really give a shit about what was going on. And he, he always would walk in, he would make jokes. He, you know, he, he knew he was just a, he was kind of a, I don't know, didn't, did not care. And he did not ever want to give me any kind of light of day. So finally, after I just kind of played ball with him and I learned that you have to, you have to talk down to, to someone's level. You, you know, if they're, if they come in yelling and screaming and saying, fuck the system, the, the, the cops hate me and whatever, I, I sit down, I say, you know what, man, you're right. Fuck the system and, and you know, the cops could do a better job because you have to meet them where they're at. 
And right. otherwise you'll never, if you're just going to stand up on your, your pedestal and preach to them about how, Hey, calm down. Like, you know, they're, they're not going to calm down. You don't know their story. So I learned that very quickly with this guy. And, uh, over the course of six to eight months, I really got to know him. And, uh, I finally broke through and this, I actually, I actually didn't get to know mo much more after this, but, um, I learned that he had been homeless for eight years and he had grew up and had been homeless for half that time in Chicago. And what sparked him to be homeless was one day his wife and two kids had been hit in a, in a car accident and killed instantly. And he kind of just said it in a, in a very like brush off the shoulder way. Like, yeah, well, my wife and kids died. So, you know, whatever, no one cares about me. And I just kind of like, Oh God, like, you know, that made me see more than ever that every single person has a story and for it to take this one person like me who doesn't have any courtroom power at all with his case whatsoever. All I do is report to the judge saying that he's showing up and that his drug tests are negative or positive or, or whatever. And, you know, and then I hear stories of him walking downtown and, and he's kind of a, uh, one of the more famous homeless people who because he just he has that character about him. Everyone kind of knows who he is. And he's knocked over things and he's tried to get a, a cigarette out of a, an ashtray that was, you know, smoked to the very last nub and all these things. And owners have come out and yelled at, yelled at him and uh, officers have have given him a hard time. And and sometimes it's just it's just like you, you can see the resentment building because he just wants to be left alone and he's just done. And there's been no one to help him out, but he's been in and out of jail for disorderly conduct, for standing in the middle of the street, for obstructing traffic, for just, you know, all these things because he has a mental illness. He, he, he has a lot of issues going on that he won't have diagnosed. He won't talk to anybody because he just gets arrested every time. And when I, when I think of him and I think of what he's been through, I think that there has there I mean there has to be thousands and millions of other stories that are baked into our prison system. Of course there are the people that are just assholes who deserve to 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 have what what's coming to them. Of course they exist. But when you have stories like the one I just told you, it's hard to imagine that our society doesn't think that they have a, a they have an obligation to help them out. It's so frustrating because that humanity is lost. And now for eight years and for how many in and outs of jail that he's had, he might be a lost cause because he will never trust anyone who's in the system. And now the system has who created him will never be able to help him. Right. Well, and I think, you know, your reaction to him had someone had that reaction seven years ago mm -hmm. and we're like, oh my gosh, this guy clearly needs help. You know, you could have saved him from being a number and a statistic on a piece of paper. Um, but, you know, I think you mentioned, you know, what, how do we not have a, a duty? And I think our culture is really one of I don't, individualist ideas. Like, I'm just going to worry about me and my own and everyone else can worry about. But, you know, I mean, what happened to helping your neighbor? And I I feel like if you look at, at societies broken up as a whole, the ones where everyone does the best are the ones that are more of a, they live as more of a collective, you know, let's make sure everybody's okay and then we're all going to do better because... Mm -hmm. You know, you just raise that floor. 
Right. It's not saying that everybody should be a millionaire or everybody should, you know, deserve this or be entitled to this. But if you just raise the bottom so that people aren't, you know, homeless on the streets, smoking cigarettes out of ashtrays, um, you know, if, if everyone's doing okay, if everyone were at least scraping by, we as a whole collective, like everybody else would move up, you know, it's not, this isn't a pie. There's no, you know, we're not splitting up so many pieces. Everyone could do better and the rest of us would also do better. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it, it is, I think we started out saying that, that it's a, it's a cultural thing and you can't make laws to change that. And I think, you know, education, awareness, um, are key. Uh, hopefully enough people would want to listen. Um, because every, you know, everyone has a story. It, it takes, it could take one bad decision to ruin someone's entire life. If that one decision was important enough, you know, and everyone makes bad decisions. Everyone, you know, messes up, but some people are doomed to pay for that one bad decision for the rest of their life. And then it's a cycle where they can't do anything but make bad decisions because of that initial initial oops. Right. Yeah. I think, I think the education part kind of goes both ways too. You want to educate people on how to get better and how to, how to have access to all these, these, these programs that do exist in a lot of communities at the nonprofit level. But that, I think that starts, the education starts with the judges, with the clerks, with the people who are interacting, the police, the people who are interacting with these people at the front end, that when you're arresting someone, you should be able to have that professional discerning moment of whether or not, does this person need handcuffs or do they need to be driven to a place that, that can help them for real? And I think that would be so powerful to change in our society. I'm not saying, and I, I think it's very important to stress this, I'm not saying that we can't hold people accountable. I think I think we really need to be be able to 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 square both accountability and compassion. Both can happen. And Right, you could do both. You can absolutely do both. And I I think it's it, it's so flawed for us to, you know, we're such a vengeful society. That was the other word I was looking for earlier. We're so vengeful. We want we want things to justice and change. But our our system also has due process. Our constitution gives us these rights that allow us to have the the right to a, a fair trial and the right to an attorney. The problem though is that our system has become so broken that the the fair trial is no longer a fair trial when you're having the court system shoved down your throat, like you said earlier, this, you know, shiny plea deal that might sound better than, 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 you know, whatever. Well, how is that fair? That's not a fair trial that you're not even getting access to a fair trial because you're being coerced by the system because the system doesn't have the time or the money or the resources to gather a, a jury of 12 peers and to have the judge and have the, on the calendar date and all this stuff. I mean, I, I've witnessed it too. Judges are overworked. There are a lot of good judges that that are just jaded. They've become so jaded with working with these people and the human element of the court system. So if you have a judge who is on a Monday morning and is, you know, it's Monday morning and you're like, oh, I'm only two coffees in. It's my first hearing. And my son had a really bad report card on Friday night and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And now I'm a human being. So now I'm going to be very mundane. And then Friday rolls around on, at 4 p.m., I want to get out. I have one more court hearing and this guy's whatever. So I'm going to try to just wipe my hands of this and get done and get out of here. 
Well, how are those two instances, even if they're the exact same case, how is that even fair? That's it's just you can't remove the human element. So I think if we give judges more of a rotational, I don't know, breathing period, if we have more cogs in the system, I'm not really sure what the answer is there. I'm just kind of spitting, you know, spitting out ideas. But I think the education in the system itself, whether it be, you know, because counselors exist in prison systems, but having those counselors know, you know, what exists on the outside with probation officers, having those two characters work together to have a better cohesive transition. Um, there are a lot, there's a lot to be done, a lot to be said. And I, I mean, I could, I could go on for hours, but. Um, well, you know, I was watching, I watched something and someone somewhere is actually using a computer algorithm to calculate how much of a risk a criminal would be, mm. um, which is uh, my my idol Andrew Yang's worst nightmare, um, <laughs> automation, um, literally doing the, the job of a person um, for like a parole board, you know? So they just input all these different things, 20 different characteristics about the person, their crime, the time they've served, da, da, da. And it spits out a number <laughs> of how likely you are to reoffend, how likely you are to be a danger to society. And that's what they go with the whole court system. It's, it was some smaller town. I mean, I don't think it's like LA or anything like that, but they just roll with it. They're like, all right, you're a, five out of 10, you know, we'll see you back in six months or, Oh, you're a 10 out of 10, you know, go back, go back where you, where you came from. But, well, you, I think you might be surprised as we use that same kind of algorithm at the pretrial agency. So that, that a lot of, so pretrial where I work was a nonprofit agency contracted by the County. A lot of pretrial agencies are done by the County itself which is a bureaucratic, you know, people who aren't paid very well and, and, and don't, aren't, they aren't there for the right reasons. If you're working at a nonprofit, you're usually there for the right reasons. Um, so you have better care and better, better um, uh, just compassion for the people that you're working with, right? But uh, we use this thing. It was a risk assessment. And basically it, you, there were five levels. And level one and level two were basically if you committed a crime and you were c charged – while you were out on bail or out on bond waiting for your trial and coming into court, you know, once a month for a status conference or whatever, uh, that level uh, dictated how many times you would come see your case manager, whether it just be a, a hello checkup and, you know, how's it going? Need anything? Okay, bye. Or uh, a drug test or a, you know, if you were a drug offender, then you would have to do a drug test makes sense, right? Uh, if you were an, al uh, an alcohol abuser or you had a history of addiction or whatever, then you would have to have a portable breathalyzer. So I would sit there at my desk and, and portable breathalyze people to make sure that they weren't drunk while they were there. And uh, it's happened quite a bit. You know, people do show up to the courtroom because they have a problem. And, and then it's my job then to report to the court. So levels one and two, you just you basically just send a text message or a call once a week and say, hey, I'm alive. Levels three, you come in once a month, then you call once a month. Level four, you come in twice a month, you call twice a month. And level five, you come in once a week in person. And, you know, that is all based on how many times you've had a uh, an arrest prior, 
Uh, how many times prior to the age of 21 you were arrested? How many times were they violent offenses? That really adds up. And then all these markers add up to whatever level you are. And then that helps. A, it it doesn't help. It doesn't serve for sentencing. So it doesn't serve in the way that you're speaking to. But it does help with the judge and the pretrial service in dealing with someone who might need more help than they're leading on. And, you know, are their record can help us understand like, okay, well, you've been here before. So why are you here again? And right. we're not, we're not going to say that you're guilty because you've done this before, but because you've done this before, maybe there's something that we can try to break through now. So I think that might be a more effective way of using it. And even probation officers can use that in helping connect to other community advocates or other, you know, mental health providers or, or addiction or AODA uh, services. But if a judge is using that in a very automated way to just say, oh, well, okay, here you are, that's a pretty scary notion. Or if a cop is using that from his laptop in his, in his patrol car prior to getting out of his vehicle and arresting you, you know, that, you know, that takes the human element out of it completely. And then it allows, allows for a lot more issues than I think we, uh, we have right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, because again, you're becoming just a number Right. On a piece of paper. And, and the whole goal is to remember that we're all still human beings. Um, Milwaukee, actually, the Milwaukee County Courthouse had a program that we used at one of the dealerships that I worked at to get hourly employees. Um, so it was basically an early release type of deal. Um, I'm sure good behavior dependent, um, but you could get out six months early, essentially if you got accepted into this program and we took in quite a few like detailers, porters. Um, and what they would do is they would send them to us for six months. They would work full time and the city paid them minimum wage. So we paid nothing hmm. out of pocket and we took no risk because they also guaranteed, you know, if someone stole one of our cars and went joyriding that our car would be fully insured by Milwaukee County. Right. Um, which did happen one time. <laughs> um, but overwhelmingly we found some of our best detailers, um, and used car porters from that program. And then after the six months is up, we could decide to hire them on as, you know, as our actual employees, then once they, once they pass that program, um, but, you know, it's, again, we found some of, some of the hardest working, best porters that we had had, that we had hired ever were from that program. A mm. um, couple shaky ones, a <laughs> couple that uh, didn't last too long. Um, but I think that immediate sense of purpose, that immediate, you know, I'm out, I have a job, I don't have to worry about that one thing. Um, made a huge difference. And I think one of them ended up becoming like a man porter manager, like the manager of the detailers. But, you know, we got some great people from that program. So, and again, it didn't cost us as a business anything for six months. Right. No, um, there was essentially, essentially no risk. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure these were, you know, who, who knows what their offense was. Um, we, at least at the employee level, weren't privy to that information. But, um, yeah, I mean, programs like that where, you know, the trades, you know, cars, plumbing, HVAC, AC, 
repairs, stuff like that, where it's, it's working with your hands. It's not sitting behind a desk. Cause I think that's, I mean, I hate sitting behind a desk. Um, you know, you got to keep your body busy, your mind busy, but stuff like that, that just gives you a, a sense of purpose. Right. Um, it, it alleviates the, the weight of having to worry about a job, but I think it also alleviates the, the mental weight of, you know, I've been told I'm just this useless reject of society, but you know, these people are giving me a chance. And most times, most times I found with that program, you know, those guys that we got out of that program worked their butt off to prove that they deserve that job. And anyone who wanted to stay pretty much stayed. So yeah, no, I, I think that sense of purpose is, is a good point. And I, I think that, that that plays into our whole the, the theme of what we've been talking about is that 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 level of compassion and empathy, understanding that human beings, human beings are human beings. Human beings need a, a purpose to, to do good in society. If you, if you don't have that, you, you're, you're more likely to offend and have issues. But I think that's awesome. I mean, I, I, I used to work at a company that had a lot of temp agencies that, that would give us people who were you know, who, you know, who could only go through a temp agency because they couldn't, they didn't know how to write a resume. They didn't know how to, to, to apply for a job the right way. So a temp agency would help them. And I, I've worked with a lot of people who were, you know, rehabilitated in the right way and give it the right shot. But I digress. Um, we're, we're just over an hour. So I do want to wrap things up, but, uh, I think we're on the right path. I think you and I just solved all the world's problems and yeah, well, you know, just what, one glass of whiskey at a time. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's the that's the plan. Um, my my wallet doesn't like that plan, but it's uh, <laughs> no. And, and so I'll it's say, a small sacrifice wallet. Come on. <laughs> it's. I will say that too. That 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 is an episode that I want to do one day with with one of my former colleagues. That you know, I I, I recognize that I I'm I'm drinking whiskey while I'm talking about addiction and alcoholism and, and things and that's wrong with the the, the system. And it's a privilege that I can do this because I, I, I have the mental fortitude to, to, to afford it and, and the, the privilege to be able to afford, you know, the luxury of, of drinking nice whiskey. But I've worked with people who aren't able to do that. I've worked with people who are who, who can't even look at a glass of, of beer or anything. So I do want to have an episode one day maybe just dedicated to, you know, alcohol or uh, drug uh, resource awareness and just, you know, having that. I have that knowledge case working with those different people and, and uh, you know, not being this, you know, petulant asshole who is up here drinking whiskey and talking about all these great things. Like, no, I, I recognize there are issues. So I think that'd be a great episode to do. Um, so I just want to yeah. say that on the that, record. That, that would be, <laughs> that, that would be awesome. I think, you know, like you, you have your background, you know, we all have different backgrounds. We all have our own experiences. And I think if, you know, you just, if every one person shared what they know, right, with other people and, and shared um, their experiences and their knowledge and resources, you know, with yep. anyone who will listen, um, <clears throat> you know, because there's a lot of people who just don't, they just don't know. Right. No, I, um, I, I You agree. don't know where to go. You don't know where to turn. You don't know who you can talk to with so many different things. So... You know, I, I, I think it's your job, everyone's job to collectively make our society a better place. And if, you know, talking about things that are hard to talk about is a step in the right direction. Difficult conversations are difficult to have, but they have to be had. Absolutely. They, that the, the dialogue is so important and it, it, it I mean, just 
being able to step into someone else's shoes and understanding that your story and your perspective is not the only story or perspective that exists. I mean, the prison system and the criminal justice system as a whole is, is so indicative of that. And I, I think you and I have shed light on, on a lot of the, the issues. And this, this, of course, is not an exhaustive list of, of things that could be done or I mean, we didn't really even get into our, what our preferred model. Uh, maybe, maybe Norway could be a something of an example if if uh, the homogenous issue wasn't a thing. But who knows? I, I think it'll be interesting to see where this goes. I think uh, prison reform is knocking on the door of a lot of people right now. Uh, we all are aware that this is a problem. So I thank you, Rachel, for coming on and talking to me about it. I'm, I'm sure we'll we'll talk about more in the future. But uh, any parting words for the? The small audience that we have at the moment. <laughs> no, I, I think I think you summed it up pretty good. You're uh, slightly more eloquent than me. <laughs> it's, well, the, the whiskey helps to to bring me down a bit. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, thank you for having me. This is a discussion that you know this subject I'm pr- I'm pretty passionate about, so I can get a little rambly. But thanks for having me and and for letting me ramble with you. <laughs> of course, I'm happy to be a sounding board, and I, I think, like you said, it's an important dialogue. So I appreciate it. So cheers to you, and uh, I'll talk to you all soon. Thanks. All right. Cheers.